Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the Starline by the editors of a book nearly 100 years in the making. Joe Jackson, plaintiff v. Chicago American League Ball Club defendant. The never-seen-before trial transcript has the complete testimony from Shoeless Joe Jackson's courtroom trial against the Chicago White Sox and team owner Charles Comiskey. Jacob Pomeranke is chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee for the Society for American Baseball Research, Sabre, and editor of Scandal on the South Side, the 1919 Chicago White Sox. David J. Fletcher is co-author of Chili Dog MVP, Dick Allen, the 72 White Sox and Transforming Chicago, which placed runner-up for the best Chicago nonfiction book in the year 2022. We welcome the editors of this story, Jacob Pomerunke and David J. Fletcher. It's great to be here, Sean. So and we appreciate your, your interest in our project. It's been a lot of fun. Friends, let's go beyond the mic. Jacob, you're director of editorial content for the Society of American Baseball Research. Why was this story the one you wanted to tell? Well, I've been interested in the Black Sox scandal for, you know, a very long time now. And it's funny because the more that I learn about this story, the more questions I have, you know, the the deeper we dig down the rabbit hole, you know, the more that, you know, we're trying to find out more about what happened 100 years ago with the Black Sox scandal in the 1919 World Series. So this is just one of many, many primary sources of information that has come to light in recent years that uh, we're you know, fortunate enough to be able to look at for the very first time. David, you're an actual physician, medical director who developed the first National Department of Transportation Medical Certification Training Program. You spent your life trying to clear Buck Weaver's name. Why was his story important for you? Well, the story is important because uh, I was hoping that this trial transcript would shed some light on the Buck Weaver involvement in the Black Sox scandal. So that was the interest. So I have to say my co-editor is equally as interested in the uh, Buck Weaver story as I am. I mean, his email address has got Buck Weaver in it. So it just is such a great story. It's, it's, it's a jigsaw puzzle and we keep finding pieces and this is a big piece. So it's important for me and my ongoing campaign to hopefully clear Buck Weaver as far as his involvement in the Black Sox scandal to have this transcript out there. Guys, after coming through this testimony, what's the damning fact that you both saw? Well, you know, I think if you if you read through Shoeless Joe Jackson's words, uh, you know, both his grand jury testimony from 1920, which is mostly uh, repeated here in this trial, um, and also his new uh, testimony from this from this 1924 trial. Um, you know, Shoeless Joe changes his story quite a bit, and you know, he tells uh, a couple different versions of you know his his own involvement in the Black Sox scandal. So I think you know if you go in this uh, if you go into this book you know, trying to find Shoeless Joe's uh, complete innocence. Uh, I don't think you're going to find it here. Um, you know, again, there's a couple different versions, uh, some variations on a theme, but uh, it's, you know, it's really interesting to finally get Shoeless Joe's, you know, own testimony, his own words about what happened. David, you've testified in cases for medical trials. Joe was charged with perjury because his story changed over four years. Hell, if I ask you about something four years ago, would your story slightly change also? Obviously, you don't remember everything. Things, but what I would say what I do in cases like that, I review my past testimony. So I make sure that I'm consistent when I said four years ago when I'm testifying again, because I know damn well that the attorney who's doing cross-examination of me is going to have that transcript. And he's going to try to impeach me, just like uh, Charles Comiskey's attorney, George Hundle, did in this case. 
So it's a real critical aspect of this trial is the fact that Joe did change his story uh, from 1920 to what he said on the stand in 1924. Why was Joe done a disservice by his attorneys? Well, you know, I think this was a very complicated case. And, you know, the thing about the Black Sox scandal is there's multiple legal proceedings here. You've got the grand, the original grand jury in 1920. You've got their criminal trial in Chicago in 1921. That's probably the most famous of them all. And then you've got this one a couple years later where Shoeless Joe is suing his former team for uh, back pay and, and a con- breach of contract. So, you know, this is a, a story that's very complicated. And I think, you know, for his lawyers trying to, you know, keep him straight, keep any witness straight on the stand is uh, is always going to be a, a tough challenge. David, when you started to research this, what was your feelings for Joe and how did they change during this project? Well, I first um, reviewed the transcript in 2003 at the office of the grandson of Ray Cannon, Joe Jackson's attorney. And that was used by a very famous Black Sox researcher named Gene Carney, who passed away in 2009 for a book called Bearing the Black Sox. I had that prior knowledge, but was really, really helpful when Jacob and I decided to put this out in the public marketplace to reread it again in such uh, detail that it just basically confirmed how what a tragedy this case was and that it was a, a bunch of cheaters cheating cheaters and, and that Joe Jackson got tied up in this. But what I knew before 20 years ago resounded in 2023 was Joe was still guilty. He participated in the fix. He consented to it and he took the money. And that's what's neat about this case. It talks about what he did with the money. He paid his sister's hospital bills. They had the banker from this bank in Georgia talk about the denominations of bills and so forth. So that's sort of what I feel some sadness that this is this ball player got involved in this and and it's obviously you know never going to be again a situation where he would have had a longer career in baseball and your thoughts jacob yeah you know i i think you know i completely agree with david here that uh nobody comes out of this entire scandal looking good not the players not charles comiskey the owner um you know none of the baseball officials and leaders you know who could have put a stop to this at any point uh before during and after the 1919 world series so you know this is one of those cases you know baseball has had some similar scandals uh in recent decades where you know nobody comes out of this looking good and i think you know seeing their own testimony in their own words you know both shoeless joe and also charles comiskey he was on the stand for a couple days and you know subject to cross-examination as well but seeing all this you know their stories in their own words i think is something that is really interesting um you know if you have any interest in baseball history just finding out what they said and, and you know, the, again, the different versions that they told uh, about this whole scandal. The book is Joe Jackson Plaintiff, the Chicago American League Ball Club Defendant, the never seen before trial transcript and the editors, Jacob Pomerenke and David J. Fletcher joining us for the Rocking Eight. All this is, friends, is eight random questions answered with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. Well, let Jacob go first. Which in-person baseball memory do you treasure the most? Yeah, well, I've been fortunate to see a lot of uh, great baseball moments, including Randy Johnson's perfect game in Atlanta. My most treasured moment is seeing a World Series game at Wrigley Field in 2016 with my wife, Tracy, who's a huge Cubs fan all her life. That is one of those moments I don't know that I will ever be able to uh, replicate for as long as I live, but uh, sure glad we got to see that. 
Uh, my favorite is uh, the blackout game for the White Sox in 2008 when they played in the Minnesota Twins. It was uh, a game where it was not on the regular schedule, and you had true baseball fans of there, and it was like an NCAA tournament because the White Sox had to get into the tiebreaker game by winning three straight games against three different teams. And that was just a tremendous night, even more fun for me than seeing the White Sox in the World Series. Favorite current baseball player? Well, I grew up in Atlanta, so I'm a Ronald Acuna Jr. fan. Watching him play this season and, and stay healthy has been uh, really incredible. I hope he wins the MVP. I don't really have a current favorite player. So, I mean, I'm a more of a, of, of a history guy. So Both of you, a simple yes or no will do. Will Pete Rose ever enter into the Hall of Fame? Yes. No. I think he's more infamous outside. Which baseball statistic is one you wish would be revised or eliminated completely? Ooh, that's a great question. I think the one that I have the most trouble with is, you know, something like fielding percentage. Defensive stats are always uh, a little complicated. So I think that's the one I would go with here. I'm not a big fan of uh, the statistic like the a hold. I just think there's too many statistics out there. And I just find that annoying. I completely agree. I despise the hold. If you could create a new stat, what would it cover, Jacob? I mean, I think if you could find, again, defensive stats for me are something that's uh, kind of a you know interesting uh, area of study. If you could find one that, that really, really encompasses a player's defensive value, I think that would be a lot of, uh, a lot of fun to uh, you know, have in our hands. I would like to see a statistic on days spent on the injured list, formerly known as the disabled list. I think that's an important statistic for the value of a player. And as a White Sox fan, it's so many of their current players just seem to be endlessly on that list. And, and if, if I was a general manager, that would be something that I would want, really want to know. And I think that is a is a major statistic that I think needs to be really out there. I like that. Pro or anti-shift? I am pro-shift. I, I enjoy watching all the different uh Different variations that are creative uh, ways a team can, can can come up to defend. I'm pro shift as well, and I think again that the players who were getting the shift on them didn't adopt to strategize how they could beat the shift. And I think that's that takes away a lot of the fun of the game by you know banning the shift. My thoughts: if they're going to be able to shift, learn to bunt. Right. What was the first baseball game you ever attended? I will never know, unfortunately. There's uh, a game in Baltimore in the early 1980s. I know that much. I have no idea which one it was. So I saw several games uh, when I was two or three years old in uh, Old Municipal Stadium in Cleveland. I had a chance to see Ted Williams play several times as a kid. So those are that's sort of, I don't know the exact date, but 57, 58. How about your favorite non-baseball place in Chicago? I'm going to go with the uh, Newberry Library. And I would agree. It's a favorite. It's in the it's, it's a centerpiece of uh, the Time Traveler's Wife novel. Unfortunately, they don't have that as much in the movie or TV version, but it's a fabulous, very unique Chicago place. If you're enjoying these conversations, please check out another Beyond the Mic episode to find more actors, artists, and people you need to know. We'd also appreciate a like and subscribe on the Good Pods app. Editors of Joe Jackson Plaintiff v. Chicago American League Ball Club defendant the never-seen-before trial transcript Jacob Pomerinke and David J. Fletcher joins us for the back half. Gentlemen, will this complete story ever be known? I mean, I keep thinking it will, but we keep discovering new sources of information and, you know, 
the more we keep discovering, uh, the more the story evolves. So it's possible one day we'll know everything there is to know. But I mean, they're still writing books about Abraham Lincoln and, and other you know figures in, in history as well. So who knows? I think that this book does provide a lot more information than it's been out there than before. But Jacobs is, is right. We keep this stuff discovering stuff. You know, we sort of have a list of things that we would like to see found. The number one thing for me is Harry's Diary that Bill Vec teased with readers in the early 1960s with a book called The Hustler's Handbook. And I was fortunate to meet and become friends with the gentleman named Fred Griebel, who sadly died recently, who found Harry's diary in the bowels of Comiskey Park when he was still a Comiskey Park employee after his uncle sold the White Sox and when the Allen family owned it. So I'd love to see what that has. Plus, we also would love to see the entire transcript for the 1921 criminal proceedings and more of the grand jury testimony, especially I'd love to read uh, what Arnold Rothstein said under sworn testimony in front of the grand jury. So those are some things that are out there. I did have a chance to uh, spend time with Elliot Asanoff, who did this Eight Men Out book, went to his house in New York in 2003. He claimed he had 150 hours of tapes of Ab Adele. I don't think they exist, but I would love to hear the, I'd love to hear that, his, his tales. So that's sort of some things I think would still be to get the complete story. Quote, Jackson stands convicted and self-accused of perjury, unquote, the judge said. Admonishing the shoeless Joe, quote, you came to the wrong state, the wrong city, to the wrong court, unquote. Joe Jackson, was he fairly or unfairly punished? I I think fairly. I mean, I think he got what he deserved. I mean, he took the money. Simple as that. I mean, he did participate in the in the fix. He agreed to. He talked to Gandal, asked for twenty thousand. He only got five. I'm not a, a Jackson sympathizer. I think that he is a, a sad American iconic figure. You know, I think there are very different degrees of guilt in this entire story. But you know, unfortunately, Shula Show is guilty. Um, he did take the money. There's just no question about it. And I think that's you know something that nobody can really look away from. The Houston Astros were caught banging a trash can and minuscule penalties were offered to the team, but nothing for the players. If Houston players had been brought before Judge John J. Gregory, would there have been a different decision, Jacob? You know, it's it's very possible, but the landscape for labor relations has changed so much in 100 years. Shoeless Joe did not have the benefit of a players union. Early on in the Black Sox proceedings, he did not even have his own attorney. So, you know, I, I think the landscape has changed too much. There's no way that a commissioner could have as much power or a judge could have as much power as Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis did 100 years ago to be able to ban all these players for life. That's, uh, you know, not something that can happen anymore. I think that Judge Gregory would have uh, thrown the book at him. I think that based on his style of justice, and he was a very well-prepared judge, so I believe that uh, they would have not have had the same outcome as they did you know, recent years. Friends, how has cheating in baseball evolved, and how has it devolved the game into statistics, shifts, and into the pitch clock generation? Well, I mean, cheating has been around for as long as, you know, human sports, (laughs) humans have been playing sports. So athletes are always trying to get an edge. They will always try to get an edge. It's up to the league and and the officials uh, in power to, you know, try to create rules and restrictions uh, to stop them from doing that. But we're never going to be able to stop people from trying to cheat and and trying to get an edge. But, you know, you do have to punish uh, the ones who, you know, cross a line. The the difference here is, you know, 
most cheating that you discuss, Sean, is a situation where you want to gain an edge. You know, you want to have some competitive advantage of this is a situation that's different. You, this is where, you know, the players tank their performance to change the outcome of the game and the betting odds. So it's a little bit different. You know, we don't know if it's still going on today. I mean, certainly you have all the college baseball scandals that have been going on with NIL, and I think that it, it could be done again. I mean, you could be a situation where someone's compromised. And it's ironic here, this book we put out 100 years after the trial, is that baseball embraces gambling. With Iowa and Iowa State college teams being affected by gambling scandals, are there pressure by players participating into uh, gambling like Joe Jackson? Oh, I don't know about that. I, I think, you know, all the sports have rules that are very clear about the participants not, you know, participating in, in betting on their own games. Um, so crossing that line, I think all the players in all sports, you know, should understand that. The issue is, you know, the culture you know, in America is, is such that everybody places a bet on something. It's very easy to do. It's very casual. You can do it on your phone now. You know, if you're growing up, especially if you're a young athlete, if you're growing up, you know, betting on sports, the fact that you are now in a position, you know, whether it's college or pro, that you are not allowed to do this when you kind of have been before, I think, you know, it, it just creates some muddy waters. And I think that's the issue that, you know, the leagues are going to have to address because they're not going to, again, they're not going to be able to stop young athletes, especially from betting on games. It's just, you know, how do you draw that line and how do you make it clear? Hey, you can't bet on games that you're participating in. How ironic was it for you guys that the son of the lawyer for Joe Jackson became the first executive director for the major league baseball players association? I think it really, um, makes the story even better. And we were actually, Jacob and I, last Wednesday, were with the grandson, Tom Cannon, up in Milwaukee. We actually, we had talked a lot about his father and we talked a lot about his grandfather. We saw where Ray Cannon's office was at. Uh, I also found out what I didn't know that Robert Cannon, the, the son of Ray Cannon, who represented Joe Jackson, was really the real owner uh, and, and ran the uh, Milwaukee Brewers rather than Bud Selig. And that was something that was really interesting that we we learned uh, last week. So and, and gave us sort of the background about how that came about, how the uh, you know pilots moved to Milwaukee. So um, you know, Ray Cannon himself, he wanted to start a, a players' union. He became a three-term congressman from Milwaukee, and he was trying to get rid of baseball's monopoly in the 1930s. Friends, should there be a wing in the Hall of Fame for players for? Greatness on the field, however less than reputable off the field, a.k.a. the steroid era. I mean, I think you can consider the Hall of Fame already that. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of people that you would not consider saints who are already inducted in the Hall of Fame, Judge Landis uh, among them. So I think, you know, if we're going to honor what a player or, you know, an official did in baseball, I think we should honor them. Put a line at the bottom of that plaque that says they were banned for life, you know, for whatever reason. But there's a lot of people in the Hall of Fame currently that, uh, you know, did a lot worse than Shoeless Joe Jackson. Should Joe Jackson be enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame? And will he ever? I think so. Absolutely. David? I, I'm not a fan of him going into the Hall of Fame. And the reason I'm not is because I think his his – his sins against baseball are so clear. And, and I feel actually him not being a Hall of Fame makes him even more popular and more of an iconic character, in, in my opinion. Now, by keeping Joe out rather than putting him in, he becomes an outcast, just like Pete Rose. 
if you put him in and you put Rose in, they're one of many who may not have been perfect men, but one of many. By keeping them out, you're giving Joe power. Absolutely. And I think I think David's right that, you know, Shoeless Joe is much more famous and iconic outside of the Hall of Fame than he would be in. If he had been elected in 1951, say, he'd be about as famous today as Zach Weed or Harry Heilman, two of his contemporaries. Great players, both, but, you know, nobody talks about them 100 years later. Sheila's show, you know, we're still talking about him. We're still, you know, trying to find out more about him, him as a person, him as a player on and off the field. So I think, you know, that is absolutely part of his story. Just don't feel that they, they belong in there. And I think you, you, you even if you... You put him in to diminish that. I think that his longevity has been because he's not in. You have, you know, South Carolina legislators doing resolutions. You know, we had for Buck Weaver, we had President Obama and he was senator to try to do something for Buck. Um, I think the notoriety is clear. I've had breakfast twice with Pete Rose where I've discussed, discussed a subject with him. He says he really wants to be in. I said, well, you make more money and more attention being out. You're sitting there at Main Street in Cooperstown with people. They want to see you there. It's something to talk about. And, you know, he blew his opportunity to, when, when he came up to Milwaukee to see Bud, which actually is, his office is close to the Cannon Law Office in just – presented himself in a very bad light to to get back into baseball. So I, I think that being the outside really makes these more colorful. You know, we're talking about it. you'd have less interest in this book if if he was in the subject was was resolved. Since you guys love baseball, who is the best and worst commissioner for baseball? Oh, I don't, I don't know that there is a, uh, a best commissioner. They, they clearly work for the owners, so they're clearly, you know, one-sided uh, in that respect. There are certainly some that have, you know, done, you know, more positive things for the game than others. But um, I think, you know, being in that position is, you know, similar to being president. It's, you know, it, it, there's no win there. I mean, you, there's a lot that you have to do, good and bad. You're always going to make somebody upset. I think there are some that uh, might be better than others, but ultimately that's, that's a really tough chair to sit in. My answer would be Judge Lannis was the worst in that he basically kept baseball being segregated. He could have changed society even earlier. And I think that's a is a, a sin that forever stains him. And that's why he's not on the MVP trophy anymore. I think the best is either Bowie, Bowie Coon or uh, Bart Giamatti. I think they were, they tried to be independent. They had baseball's best interests out there. Bud Selig was a, you know, he was a, you know, was an owner. I mean, I think he tried, but I, th- I think the, the two I just said, I think were really good. Friends, do you believe the Baseball Writers of America do a fair job electing members into the Hall of Fame, or has recency bias affected who gets in? Um, you know, I definitely think the writers uh, have done a pretty good job. I think a lot of the most controversial selections have been the Veterans Committee's selections. So I think, but generally, if you go back and look at the players that the writers have voted in, I think in general, they get them, most of them right have very few omissions there's a handful but uh for the most part the writers get it right i would agree except for how they treated uh, dick allen i mean he hardly got any kind of uh, votes from the writers and he's missed the last two times in the veterans committee by one vote why do you love baseball and has your love of the game changed i mean i've loved baseball since before i can remember but it's brought you know so many great people into my life 
you know, I have so many great positive memories uh, tied up in the game, both on and off the field, both, you know, playing, participating, just being a fan and now working in baseball. So, you know, it, it's a game that I've always loved and has brought so much uh, enjoyment to my life. I don't have the same love for the game like I did when I was growing up. I just don't like the modern game. I don't like the DH rule. I don't like the hold rule. Obviously I talked about, it. I don't like the elimination of shifts. So I think it's that is, is really change. And, and I don't like the pitch clock. I think one thing I liked about baseball was a timeless matter of you didn't have to, you know, worry about the clock and you could be out there forever. So for me, it's the inter- intergenerational connection, you know, from my father who just recently died and his love for baseball to me to instill it into my kids. But I, I just really like the history and it's a really kind of an American urban game. I mean, obviously it's big in rural areas, but I, I like the, the connection with cities and very fascinated by the stadiums. Nobody likes the hold stat, but they both love baseball. Joe Jackson, plaintiff, the Chicago American League Ball Club defendant, the never-seen-before trial transcript is the book. We thank the editors, Jacob Pomerenke and David J. Fletcher, for taking the time to talk with us today. That's correct. So thanks for having us on. Thanks, Sean. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. Beyond the Mic.